Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood Room now. I'm here with our best friend, Kevin Winthrop. Hey, Kev, how are you? Good, Jack. How are you? Nice to see your face. Yeah, it's uh, it's still COVID. Um, uh, Kevin, as everyone knows, is a professor of medicine, ophthalmology, public health, I think carburetors and everything else at uh, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Kevin, you've been tremendously helpful to the rheumatology community uh, in this year, giving us a lot of good instruction. Uh, as you know, there's a bit of a flurry of interest and questions uh, with the release of the new uh, Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. I want to um, review a few things, ask you a few questions. So first, you and I, along with Jeff Curtis, Artie Kavanaugh, a few other really smart people, were on an uh, interesting work group that developed slides about vaccination and rheumatic disease. Um, can you give us a few uh, basic um, takeaways on um, uh, how well vaccination goes in patients with rheumatic disease first? Yeah. You know, the, the literature is uh, pretty decent. There's a dozen plus studies that have really focused primarily on the usual vaccines, you know, that you see in everyday practice, influenza, the two pneumococcal vaccines, more recently, the, the PCV13, really just, just the last couple of years, you see some studies there. Most of the literature there is on, on Pneumovax, the old polysaccharide vaccine that we still use. And then, you know, there's some stragglers there, studies with tetanus. Um, many of the studies have been meant to answer um, you know, two questions. One, does uh, how well do the vaccines work from an immunogenicity standpoint in a disease state versus, you know, healthy controls? And then the other types are kind of within a disease state, RA, for example, examining the effect of the DMARD on uh, not efficacy, but immunogenicity. And so I, you know, to summarize those in a in two minutes or less, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of review papers out there. You and I, you and I have helped helped with some of them, but, um, you know, for the most part, uh, autoimmune disease patients in general, obviously some are sicker than others, but uh, they don't react to vaccines as well as a healthy control that's similarly aged and sexed. Um, and then depending on the DMAR, those, those uh, Im immune responses might be more diminished. So what DMARs do we worry about? Obviously, rituximab, B-cell depletion therapy in, uh, in MS or RA or wherever. I mean, that's, that is a major concern with vaccines. And it's very clear the farther you vaccinate out from rituximab, the better. So, you know, I try to get people their vaccines, the ones we're talking about, you know, six months uh, after the last rituximab or later. And sometimes it's a bargain with the rheumatologist to say, hey, can they, can they go a little bit longer before I, um, you know, you give them the rituximab. And then waiting two weeks after you vaccinate them, right? I mean, that's that two week post-vaccine period is critical uh, in terms of immune response building. And then there's some data around methotrexate, of course, with influenza holding it at the time of vaccine uh, administration for two weeks can, can improve influenza responses. Uh, there's a lot of data with methotrexate and pneumococcal vaccine, not experimental data in terms of like hold it for two weeks and see what happens, but just comparing groups of people on methotrexate to similar groups of people who are not on methotrexate. You certainly see methotrexate uh, dumbs down uh, a variety of uh, vaccine responses, particularly pneumococcal uh, vaccine, and that's been well studied. And outside of that, you know, you know, most of the studies show that 
um, there's some effect by jack inhibitors there's some effect by tnf blockers but usually it's in the quantitative output so maybe the immunogenicity is a little bit lower but the proportions of patients that are reaching satisfactory response or immunoprotective levels seems to be uh, maintained so so those drugs uh, probably do have some effect but but not as much as the uh, others i mentioned yeah the remarkable thing about that uh, exercise and the data that we reviewed was uh, of all the new therapies and, and whatnot out there, it was surprisingly good how, uh, how much of an immune response you could actually get even being on those new therapies. Uh, and you know, while there were studies that showed some uh, diminished responses, overall, the only thing that's, that really stood out was that rituximab uh, data and the methotrexate effect. So, and I think this is telltale for our patients who were now considering a new vaccine and patients who are on therapy. And those are the two drugs that we need to worry, maybe concern, be concerned about. We'll talk about maybe specific recommendations for those um, at the very end. You know, the um, package insert um, on this, uh, if there is a package insert with the EUA, emergency use authorization, it does say those who are um, uh, immunosuppressed may have a diminished immune response but they didn't really study that. They didn't. They certainly did not have patients in these studies who were uh, included because they were immunosuppressed. So our patients are largely um, a virgin population, yet the two drugs, the Moderna vaccine being approved today, the, the Pfizer vaccine on the market right now, uh, both those studies being done in 30 and 40,000 patient populations or subject populations uh, with all ages with a lot of with uh, comorbidities on board. Is there any solace in those big numbers, even though there are no immunosuppressed patients in there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a couple of things. The safety data from the vaccine studies so far, those two programs that have really presented their data uh, looks great. I mean, there, there's really small numbers of, um, you know, usually self-limited events. I mean, there, there's a little imbalance of Bell's palsy, you know, I think four cases in the Pfizer program versus, uh, you know, zero in the placebo and kind of something similar in the Moderna program. There's a few cases of appendicitis, you know, but, but there's nothing in those data sets that even if they are related to the vaccine, that uh, would preclude you from wanting to get it uh, right now. I mean, the risk benefit is clearly on the benefit side. Um, you know, in terms of autoimmune disease, uh, obviously, you know, could those vaccines cause autoimmune disease? That's an open question. Uh, the follow-up isn't really probably long enough to, to answer that question, uh, but I, I doubt it. Um, and in terms of people with existing autoimmune disease, of course, you're right. The, the, the patients on immunosuppressive agents were excluded from those studies, but, but I think, what you're suggesting is probably right. I, I suspect there were people with, you know, mild autoimmune disease in those studies that just aren't on biologics, for example, or on DMARDs. Um, there had to be a few of them, you know, people with mild psoriasis that just weren't on immunosuppressive. So, um, you know, we, we don't know that, that the vaccines can flare autoimmune disease, but I will tell you that mRNA vaccines in general, as you know, uh, they elicit a very strong uh, type one interferon response. Right. Um, it would not surprise me if uh, they could cause a lupus flare or even an RA flare or something else. So I, I think that's something obviously we're going to address in future studies. Um, but but again, those flares can generally be handled too. So uh, probably again, the, the, even if that is a risk, the benefit of the vaccine outweighs it. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great observation and, and one that should be considered. On the other hand, 
70,000 patients treated if the mRNA were eliciting a, a type 1 interferon response in these people that would give rise to some of those um, side effects that you notice usually with vaccines. Um, you would have thought that maybe it would have given you more autoimmune features or more autoimmune type flares, and that really has not in the profile of what we've seen uh, so far. So I think that's encouraging. Um, and again, yeah. you know, the really rare things that you talk about, single digit reports, you know, uh, versus 70,000 as, as a denominator. Um, again, everyone has to make a ju value judgment uh, about whether or not uh, there's a risk here for any individual patient. What do you think, what do you make of the, the generalized comment, like um, patients who have allergies should talk to their doctor before they get this vaccine? Well, I hope that's not true because that means everybody's going to talk to me and you and everyone else because everyone's right. got allergies. Right. Um, yeah, I, you know, clearly the, the two cases of uh, anaphylactoid type reactions in England generated that initial um, press release from the, the British Regulatory Authority. And it really was centered on people who've had a history of anaphylaxis before um, and not just allergies. So, you know, whether that's... Um, important or not, I don't know. It seems reasonable if you had, I mean, someone asked me too, like, well, what if you had Guillain-Barre syndrome before from a vaccine? I mean, I, I highly doubt this, this vaccine is going to give you what, you know, something else gave you or a natural infection gave you um, 10 years ago. But um, yeah, so the anaphylaxis thing, I, I think that's the issue. It's not really allergies. It'd really be a prior anaphylaxis episode. And even that, again, I, I don't, I mean, it's two cases in England, kind of like you're talking about, I and mean, we're talking about four cases of Bell's palsy and 20,000 people, you know, or a couple cases of anaphylaxis and thousands and thousands of people. So um, I, I think that um, you should talk to your doctor about if you have anaphylaxis type pro problems. But to me, I would solve that by getting the vaccine and having an EpiPen right next to my <laughs> right next to me uh, in the clinic, you know, and be in a place that you could uh, get help if you needed it. I, I wanted to answer, though, your first question, because I kind of, I, I, I transitioned to, to the second part of that question. But the first question was, you know, in the package insert, which I think you're right, there's probably not even packages yet or inserts. But, you know, the idea that people who are immunosuppressed may not respond as well. And I think, you know, it's probably true. And we certainly see that in in the vaccine literature with the other vaccines we talked about. I also think you can extrapolate a little bit from natural infection. We do see that people who are immunosuppressed who get COVID tend not to mount as much uh, of a robust immune response, at least in terms of uh, antibody titers. And they, they are more likely to shed viable virus for longer time periods. So, I mean, I do think there's something from that we can draw from that, that probably if you're vaccinated too, you probably won't have quite a robust response, but, um, and obviously that would vary upon what disease you have and your disease activity, and then probably what DMARs you're taking. So uh, as we're gonna wrap up, I wanna give you um, uh, the discussions I've had with um, uh, my docs at UT Southwestern. First, someone's on rituximab, should I just wait until they get the vaccine to, to get their rituximab, even if I can have to hold the rituximab infusion another month or two or three? Is that what you would recommend? Yeah, I, I think we're in that kind of three-month zone of probably having more widespread vaccine where, where most of our patients are going to have access to it. So um, I, I think it's probably time to start holding it. Yeah, if you think they can, 
they can do it. I mean, obviously it depends on their disease activity, but. Yeah. Next, the tough one about methotrexate and whether you should hold it for two weeks like we do with influenza, but let's yeah. remember the timing here. You get the initial vaccine, then you got to get your second shot three weeks later. So then you're going to have to have to be off of it, what, another two weeks? So is that you're off for three weeks or five weeks? And, you know, you can be off methotrexate for two weeks without a flare. Um, I would argue you should just continue methotrexate uh, and hope that that second shot gives you that big amnestic response. Talk about how much protection you get with the first shot and the second and then the second shot three weeks later. Yeah. I mean, you've seen the, the data presented at the adcoms, you know, um, there's not a whole lot going on immunologically on day 21 in terms of antibody titers or cell mediated immunity. Uh, clearly, you know, so, so these are two shot vaccines, uh, day 21 or day 28 is the booster, uh, depending on which vaccine it is. So you're right, it does complicate that idea of holding the methotrexate. Um, when you look at uh, the week or two after that booster shot, that's when you see pretty high titers and, and really maximal vaccine response um, in those programs. So, so I, I don't know, would it be better to hold the methotrexate for two weeks around the first, the primary, or, or around the booster or around both? I mean, those are really open questions, and it's really complicated to do that clinically. So um, I, I think if I was tempted to uh, do anything, I might hold it for two weeks around the primary shot, and then I'd probably restart it. Uh, if, if they're super stable and you think they can go without it longer, then, then I think you could do that, but just depends on flare risk and all those things. You know, I, I will say that steroids, from all those other vaccines, steroids do not really have much effect on vaccination at all, and I'm talking low-dose steroids. Right. Um, so, you know, we're talking five and and under maybe seven and a half and under. So, you know, if you get into a flare territory where you use in high doses, that could be really detrimental to a vaccine response, I think. So that's your, that's, those are the two factors you've got to play with as a rheumatologist, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that I, I kind of agree with you. If I was gonna hold methotrexate, and I'm probably not, to be honest with you, if I was, I would hold it during the first part because I'd wanna get as many memory cells as I could, you know, doing the hard work to get ready for their, their, their next takeoff, you know, which they're going to get in three weeks or four weeks with the second shot. Um, I think that uh, that when you look at those graphs, the, you know, there's a pretty steep curve on titers and, 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 uh, you know, reactivity that I, if there's a blunting by methotrexate, it's not going to be enough, I think, to really uh, yeah. support the patient. So I, I agree. And I, it may not make a difference at all. I mean, if you look back at that influenza work that, that um, I was involved in with, with um, you know, Dr. Park and Dr. Bong Lee, I, you know, when we went back and looked at that and Xavier Mariette was really key in that, looking at why that effect was there, it really had to do with the initial levels of BAF in the individual. And the people that had really high BAF levels, you know, we saw a difference whether we held their methotrexate or not, but the people who didn't, it really didn't matter. Right. Um, so I don't know, you know, who's who in terms of their BAF level um, and certain diseases or certain individuals obviously may have higher or lower BAF levels. So I, I don't know, I, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not sure it's something that um, you need to do. I'm not sure it would make a difference. Uh, if I was going to do anything, I would probably either not do it or just do it the first two weeks because I really don't want people to flare and end up on higher dose steroids. Um, and, you know, the other thing too, is I tell people, you know what, you're going to get some decent protection out of these vaccines. And if, um, 
you know, if it's not good enough or it doesn't last that long, which it might not, you know, these, this may last six months or 12 months. We don't know how long it lasts. And I suspect it won't last that very long. I think we're all probably going to be getting different kinds of vaccines and uh, in the coming years to, to protect us from this. So, you know, the protein-based vaccines are coming um, and there's the adenoviral vaccines, which, you know, I don't know how they're going to play out, but, but we have a, we'll have, you know, probably five or six players in the marketplace by the summer. So. So in the rollout of the vaccines, you know, uh, 21 million healthcare workers are supposed to get it first, then the 3 million uh, um, nursing home elderly are supposed to get it. Um, and it seems like there's a good plan at my university, your university, who's going to get it, what stage, what group you're in. I was lucky enough to get mine. I know you're waiting on yours um, and it, it, that's going to happen. But our patients are asking, doc, should I get it? We're saying yes. When can I get it? How am I going to get it? Do you have any insight as to how the, those people in group three and group four, you know, people who are either elderly, people who have autoimmune disease, uh, you know, whether immunosuppressed or not, uh, are they likely to get it at their doctor's office, at a central location, or at a Walgreens or a CVS? What do you think? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, there's a lot of efforts planning, both at the state level and Obviously, we have a new administration at the federal level, so that that's going to um, be different. I mean, there's a lot of planning going on. I know by the new administration, pre-planning, I guess you'd call it. Um, you know, right now we have a very decentralized system, and it's being left to the states. And I suspect it'll become more of a uniform approach, probably with the Biden administration. But but I don't know. I, I think a lot of it's going to be dictated by the type of vaccine and who can give it, right? And if you need a negative 70 degree Celsius freezer, you're going to have a vaccine only at certain places. Um, you're not going to have it at Walgreens. Um, so the Moderna vaccine that doesn't have as much uh, freezing requirements, and then the AZ, you know, some of these other vaccines coming, um, they're going to be easier to give in a community-based setting rather than an institution or academic institution or research center. So, so I think a lot of that, you know, the state health departments, obviously, no matter what administrations involved, uh, are going to be key on trying to steer vaccines to to um, places that can handle it and manage it and keep it viable, and then of course um, give it. I. I, I suspect that that's why I think, you know, people are pretty optimistic, like, oh, I'm going to get vaccinated next month. And I keep telling my patients, say, well, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be a couple months. I mean, I, I tell my patients, I just saw 20 patients today. I told every one of them, I mean, I'm thinking March, if you're lucky, will be, it'll be pretty widespread and that you can call me up and I can say, yeah, come on in. We have a special clinic and we're going to run people through the clinic to vaccinate them. Yeah, I, and that's a number. I, that's a, the, the same date I've been giving my patients. I tell them I'll support you. I'll help you get it when I know more. When I know more, you'll know more. It's probably going to be on the news. That's where we'll both find out about it. But we need to we need to wait and see at this point. Um, could you close with some comments about the ACR task force that you're involved with with, with regard to this vaccine vaccination and our patients? Yeah, sure. There's uh, well. Well, there's a, a guideline um, effort so for vaccinations in general. So that has just been started. So ACR has decided it's time to re renew our, our vaccine guidelines. Um, and so I, I'm part of that core uh, group. And so we are, we're in the process of you know, starting a systematic literature review, et cetera. You know, everything we do for, we're making our PICO questions, Jack. <laughs> I hate PICO, PICO questions. I know. Yeah. 
anyway, we're going to do that. That's what we're doing first. But um, and in that context, we also have a special task force uh, that we have um, assembled and tasked with uh, a very rapid uh, disbursement of expert opinion based advice, you know, using probably a Delphi method and and guessing uh, and based on kind of the things, you know, we're just talking about, you know, what do we see in the rest of the vaccine literature? What do we know? Uh, and what do we know about the immunology of these diseases and the drugs that people use? And so there will be some guidance, I think, given pretty soon, probably in the next uh, few weeks or early January. That that guidance will be kind of like the therapeutic task force that I was involved in. You know, it's it's expert opinion at the start, and six months later, there'll actually be some data. So, right. um, you know, we'll, it'll be a living document. And and you know, we have plans to study some of these questions. So I, you know, Jeff Curtis and I have have a large Shingrix uh, study that's hopefully starting soon here that we're going to layer on some, uh, hopefully some COVID vaccine uh, recipients and see if we can understand the immunology. And we're hoping to do that with ACR and a variety of people like yourself and others. So uh, stay tuned on that. So the good news is that you guys are on this and working on this and are likely to deliver something before our patients are going to actually need to know some real details. So the timing is just perfect. And we really are blessed that the uh, that you and Jeff and others are so on top of this and working hard at this. So Kev, thanks again for your time. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Yeah, I'm glad you got vaccinated. Good, good, good for you. And uh, let me know how the next one goes. It looks Just, like you feel fine, right? You're 24 hours out, you feel great. Really had no symptoms at all. I, I'd have to say on a, you know my arm, uh, I have to show you the Band-Aid, um, but maybe one out of 10 pain and that's an exaggeration. So. I'm blessed. Uh, my partner who was in the study, she had, uh, uh, Catherine had a lot of symptoms and whatnot. I've had nothing. So, yeah. well, you know, the last thing I'll say, and then we'll turn the cameras off and you can take your shirt off and look at your bandaid. But, you know, older people, if you look at the data and probably immunosuppressed people, probably people with autoimmune disease, they're probably going to actually do better with the vaccine. You know, less reactogenicity, less uh, you know, local or systemic side effects and, and probably fly through it a lot easier than, you know, 25 year old or 30 year old. So that's right. I think in her case, it was youth and beauty that's working against her and <laughs> my windfall. So <laughs> all right. it's finally paying off to be old, Jack, right? <laughs> all right. Hey, great to catch up with you. See Thanks you, everyone. Yeah. Cheers.